there are two instances in the Bible where we are told that food opened the eyes of the people and then everything changed for them. The first is well known, Genesis chapter 3 verse 7, in the Garden of Eden, Eve was tempted by Satan and we are told, when a woman saw that a tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Sin would come into the world with that one bite and everything would never be the same for them again. The second is less well known. It's the passage from Luke chapter 24, verse uh, 31. And this was the time when Jesus was resurrected. He was walking on the Emmaus road with two believers, but they didn't recognize him. They invited him to stay with them. And then we are told in verse 30 of chapter 24 of Luke, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were opened and they recognized the resurrected Jesus. And things were never the same again for them. My hope is that this morning our experience will be more with the second instance. That our thinking about food today will open our eyes in a way that will help us see Jesus clearer. And hopefully things will never be the same again for us. Welcome to Christ the King. If you just join us, we're into the third week of our four-week sermon series. We've so far covered the topics of covenant and kingdom. These two are unifying themes that help us explain the whole story of the Bible. Today, our topic is about food, and together with next week's topic on work, I think these are themes about Christian lives. All of us eat and work, I think. We need to know that the Bible has something to say about that. And I hope you hear that loud and clear this morning. You can turn with me right now to Leviticus chapter 11, uh, page 83, Black Bible, and 99 for the Large Screen Bible, 83 and 99. Any one of you heard a sermon on Leviticus chapter 11 recently? <laughs> I didn't think so. Anyway, if you've been listening to the last two weeks' sermon, you know the setting. The nation Israel is now in the Sinai wilderness, poised to enter into the promised land. And there, God made a covenant with Moses, giving him the laws that spelled out for the Israelites how they were to be holy, to be set apart from the other nations around them. And many of these laws were written in the book of Leviticus. You look at Leviticus 11, for instance. It deals with what would be considered clean and unclean creatures, which in turn decides what can be eaten and what cannot be eaten. These dietary laws played a very crucial role in the history of Israel because together with circumcision and the keeping of the Sabbath, they have become what you call the main boundary markers for deciding who is a Jew. And by extension of that, it defines who is not a Jew. And these three practices make it hard for Jews back then and even today to assimilate with the neighboring nations. And our passage in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1 to 23, essentially spells out what food can be eaten and what cannot. 
I, I know as you hear it been read and, and Jerry did a good job with it, but it sounds complicated, but actually it's quite simple. And let me make it, make it simple for you. Well, first of all, the creatures are all divided into three categories. Right? Those that inhabit the land, you see that from verses 2 to 8. Those that inhabit the water, from verses 9 to 12. And then those that inhabit the air, verses 13 to 23. And then each category is interned. Uh, the animals uh, or the creatures there will be vaccinated in one of two states. Clean or unclean. Creatures that are considered clean can be eaten. Creatures that are considered unclean or detestable cannot be eaten. So it's quite simple, isn't it? A matrix of three by two, right? Three categories, two states. And Well, if you take the creatures that inhabit the land, for instance, how do you know if they're clean or unclean? Well, the rule for that really is that if they've got divided hooves and they chew their food thoroughly, well, they're considered clean. And this would include your cow, your, your, your sheep, and your goat. And you're basically your domesticated animals. And then creatures that did not have divided hooves or, or, or chew their food thoroughly or, or didn't do any, have any of the both of them, they would be considered unclean. And this would be your pigs, your, your camel, your, your hair. And then for those that, uh, creatures that inhabit the waters, those that had fiends and, and skills were clean. The rest were not. So no eels, no um, lobsters, no crabs. For those creatures that inhabit the, the air, the birds of prey, uh, raptors, or those that feed on dead animals, they were not to be eaten. They were considered unclean. And as for the insects, only those that have legs for hopping could be eaten. Simple enough? Clear? Good. So the question is, what? What were the criteria by which these different creatures were classified clean or unclean? And some reasons over the centuries have been given. Uh, one is hygiene, hygienic reasons. The dietary laws are God's way of protecting the Israelites from certain diseases so that food, harmful to the personal health, are unclean, right? Well, the only problem with this view is that if hygiene is an issue, it's hard to explain why then it is not continued in the New Testament, right? I'm sure we need to be hygienic in the New Testament too. <laughs> Theological. Well, the argument there is the unclean animals, these are those that are used for pagan worship. And so, if you make them uncle- so making them unclean would be sending a theological message against the pagans. Well, but it doesn't explain, for instance, why the bull is considered clean. Because as you know, the bull is used for the worship rites for the Canaanites and the Egyptians. Death. Ah, death is the ultimate unclean, right? So animals, birds that prey on other animals or dead flesh are naturally considered unclean. And morphological movement. There's a preference for what is regarded as normal in broad terms. And I'm quoting this from somebody who wrote, the Israelite priestly understanding of holiness and cleanness was strongly based on a concern to preserve the wholeness or integrity of things and to avoid the mixing or confusion of categories. So there is a sense that what is considered standard in those days, they just kind of knew what was standard for each type of creature. And for instance, the hoof legs were considered standard for domestic uh, animals. So they're suitable for sacrifice, for instance. Uh, fins and scales were standard for sea creatures. Birds of prey and carrion eaters, as in those that uh, eat flesh uh, with its blood, obviously they're unclean because they behave in an unclean way. 
creatures that moved in a mixture of ways and, and like your eels and uh, whatever, uh, they, they kind of disturbed the boundaries that, uh, and were considered abnormal. Well, the long and short of it really is this. We don't exactly know what the criteria will. It could have been a combination of all those reasons or, or none of it at all. The Bible just doesn't tell us. It just states that it is so. But I think the more important question is why. Why were there food restrictions to begin with? And for that, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45 to 47 is helpful. And there we are. It's made clear to us, God wants these food laws to set Israel apart from its neighboring nations. He wants Israel to be holy. In a sense, we can think of the choice of what was considered clean animals as similar to God's choice of Israel to be his treasured possession from the rest of the nations of the earth. because it's not because Israel was superior any more than the clean animals were superior to the rest, but it was totally because of God's sovereign choice to choose Israel and not another nation. And in a sense, it's God's sovereign choice to designate which animal was clean and which was not. And so the food loss becomes a daily reminder to Israel of the importance of holiness and the call to be different. In fact, every meal reminds them of that. That's the intention. But over time, what happens? These food laws, together with other laws like the ritual cleansing laws, they got expanded, right? The new requirements and new traditions to be followed, they got, they got added. For instance, right now, there are requirements about washing of hands, washing of cups and pots, even washing of dining couches. <laughs> Won't help very much if you've got IKEA furniture, but... You turn to Mark 7, you find all that there. And then, of course, who you may or may not eat with, and so on. What's happening right now is that the teachers of the law, in effect, were creating a system that allowed them to feel superior. But they also ended up creating not not just boundaries with the, the Gentiles, but also with the Jewish poor. And this is because, increasingly, only the rich, the wealthy, could ever have the time and the money to follow the laws or do all the required ritual cleansing. Those in the slums have little hope of becoming ritually clean because the poor will will most likely not be able to fulfill the necessary ceremonial washing. This is classic legalism 101, requiring obedience for works to get right with God beyond what God had ordained. And then Jesus came. Well, expected, as expected, there was a showdown. Uh, Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 5. Uh, if you can turn to Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You see, they forgot, or well, they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And Jesus answered, Look with me at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a 
person from outside cannot defile him, since he enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then here, helpfully, Mark writes, Thus he declared all foods clean. And so Mark is telling us from this incident that from Jesus' point of view, that all food is clean. And so Jesus has declared all food clean, and it sends all food laws obsolete. Well, to be clear, Jesus isn't rejecting the food laws of Leviticus because they are wrong. He's showing them that they are being fulfilled. The food laws were meant to set people apart, to make them into a holy nation. But Jesus is now here to do that. He will pay for our sins on the cross. He will clothe us with his righteousness so that we are clean before God. And so in a sense, Leviticus chapter 11 has been superseded. There is no room for legalism. No room for putting the law above gospel by establishing additional requirements to be clean before God beyond repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But what has not changed is the fact that followers of Jesus are still called to be holy, to be set apart. Because Jesus said we are to be light and salt in the world, distinct from the world. And what should set us apart is not the food we eat, the externals. But what should set us apart is the internals, our hearts. Hearts that are clean and right before God. And from a clean heart will flow the words and actions that the world will recognize as being distinct. So food in the days of the Israelites was meant to set Israel apart from the neighboring nations. But Jesus has come now, and now he wants us to replace clean food with clean hearts. And so what happens next? Jesus has come. A new com Christian community has been formed. And because it's still a relatively small group of believers, most Christian gatherings were carried out in homes. And then when you gather in homes for worship and fellowship and teaching, what I often mean is that there'll be food involved, right? Pretty much like what we have here in Christ the King. Community eating becomes common in those days. And then before long, there were issues about food again. Go so turn with me to the passage uh, in Romans chapter 14, page 892 in the Black Bibles. 892 and 1050, 1050 in the Large Green Bibles. Romans chapter 14. Well, let me keep it for you, simple for you again in this chapter. There are basically two issues here. The first issue is this. People have become judgmental. See, what happened is that even though Mosaic law uh, does not forbid the eating of meat, but many Jews were living in, who were living in pagan environments, they would refrain from eating meat because they were afraid that the meat may have been sacrificed to some pagan gods in the temple. You see, in those days, it was common for the butcher shop to be situated next to the temple. So that, you know, what do you offer as meat in the, uh, on the altar for the uh, um, idols in a temple? Comes out after that, so in a butcher. And in fact, um, that's a common practice. And this group of Christians that Paul calls weak in faith here, I just want to clarify, it's not that they are not saved or, or that they don't trust in Jesus. In fact, they may well be believers who are very fervent in their faith. But some of what is practiced during their pre-Christian days are still with them. They haven't quite worked out fully yet the implication of the gospel on their freedom in these areas. And so they refrain from eating meat. And the strong, of course, 
believed that they could eat anything. And so what do you have here? You have a recipe for conflict. The strong despised the weak, and the weak was just judgmental towards the strong. And then this was not confined to just food. Even the issue of whether one day is better than another became an issue. Some believe that all days are the same, but others thought that some days were special, like perhaps the Sabbath. And so you can imagine that meal times were not always the best times, like many families, I guess. You know, and that's not all. Because secondly, you have a situation where the weak sees the strong eating unclean food. So one group of them would judge the strong, but another group would do something different. They'll start eating the food themselves. But their eating is not from faith. They're not eating because they think it is right to eat. In fact, they still have some doubts about whether it's right. In fact, it feels wrong to them. But you know what? Hey, this strong Christian brother of mine is eating. And so even if I'm not sure, it must be right. Well, it tastes so good anyway. And so this weak brother has doubts, but he eats anyway. And then Paul puts it this way. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so the strong brother has now stumbled the weak brother. And so those were some of the issues surrounding the early Christian community. Now what's the solution? Well, let me make just five quick observations from what Paul has written here in Romans 14. Well, firstly, let's be clear, these are serious matters. Paul uses very strong words in this chapter. Verse 15, But what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 20, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Verse 23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. So, point number one, these are serious matters. Point number two, look at verse one. Let's not quarrel over opinions. Or in some other versions, they have, let's not quarrel over disputable matters, or even matters of conscience. Let us be clear what Paul means by opinion here. I don't for a moment think that Paul was talking about personal preferences. Should we paint our walls here blue, maybe yellow? Keep you awake during sermon. It helps the reflection. And I, I'm sure Philip will be happy with any color as long as it's red. <laughs> right? So I want to be careful here. I, want to be, I don't want to be trivializing what is in question here. It's more serious than that. It's not just personal preferences. On the other hand, I'm certain that Paul is also not talking about the core doctrines of salvation. Matters that we just read together in the creed a moment ago. So it's more issues somewhere in between. These are issues which require theological considerations. But they're not the core doctrines. And examples today would, could well be, well, should our priests wear robes? You know, I know of priests in other churches, Anic churches, they wear robes. So why shouldn't ours? Amen. <laughs> 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 or should not, uh, those who are, are not ordained, shouldn't they be allowed to perform rites of baptism as well? I know some church down the road and, you know, um, the elder there is not ordained and he, he does baptism. Or which version of the Bible should I use? Or should we use as a church? Or, you know, issues on the millennium. We want to be careful that we don't end up thinking that every issue 
as a disputable matter of conscience. But we don't, also don't want to think that hardly any area is a disputable matter of conscience. So there are issues. And as we think of these issues, we need to ask ourselves, has God specifically spoken in His Word about this issue? And if He has, has He clearly forbidden it or clearly commanded it? Paul's conclusion is that food issues being disputed over are not worth disputing over. In fact, you can tell which side Paul is on, right? He's clearly on the side of the strong. He doesn't believe that any food is unclean. But yet we see no mention at all in the text of Paul trying to tell the weak that their position is wrong. In fact, in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. In fact, for Paul, if someone acts against their conscience, even if the act is not wrong, it is wrong for them because they are not acting in accord with their beliefs. You got that? Even if the act is not wrong, it is wrong for them because they are not acting in accord with their beliefs. So even though the act may not be wrong because it's not done in faith, it is sin. And so what do you do in these situations? Well, some wise chap once said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's a helpful guide, I think. And on this basis, the issue in chapter 14 would clearly come under the category of non-essentials. And as such, the believer's freedom to decide will be preferred rather than judgment. Which brings us to our third point. Don't pass judgment. Don't be judgmental. Especially on disputable matters. Passing judgment here, let's be clear, it's not about making a considered and prayerful discernment. It's more like condemnation and denunciation. It's more like being censorious in one's opinion of someone else. And you can detect this, there's always a sense of superiority involved in the one doing the judging. Don't get me wrong here. Paul don't have an issue, for instance, even with one Christian reproving or rebuking another, as he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Reprove and rebuke by all means, but it's always done according to Scripture, with patience and for the good of the other. And this is a far cry from the passing of judgment that Paul is speaking about here. And so Paul is saying, don't pass judgment. Rather, remember that God is the only judge and each one of us has to give an account to Him. Leave that to God. Whatever your convictions on this matters, make sure that you can do it in honour of God, do it for God's glory, and be able to thank God for it. Fourthly, don't stumble others. Now, this is hard. I say this is hard because we live in a society today where freedom is treated as the ultimate value in society. In fact, I can think of few values that rank higher in our society here. Our laws tell us that. Our movies reinforce that. Freedom is key. It's important. Don't get me wrong. I love the freedom that we have here in Canada. Well, I come from Singapore. 
Karina and I have spent some time in places where as a couple, a married couple, we did not have the freedom to hold hands. But Paul is telling us here that there are more important things than freedom. Don't mistreat Paul on this because Paul is big on freedom. You don't believe me? Look up Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Look up 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul is big on freedom. But he's saying here that there are things that are more important than freedom. Much, much more important. Like not stumbling your brother. Like the upbuilding of the faith of your sister. The exercise of your freedom must be subordinate to that. Martin Luther once, uh, used, uh, once said, A Christian man is a most free lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. You see that paradox? I know, I, I did tell you it's going to be hard. So Paul is telling the Christians in Rome, for the sake of your brother or sister, please don't do anything that will stumble them in their faith. If it means not eating meat, then abstain from it. In fact, this is precisely what he said to the church in Corinth. As you can tell, this is quite a common issue back then. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so our fourth point here, don't stumble others. Fifth point, keep the big picture in mind. Okay, Paul didn't exactly say that. But if you look at verses 16 to 19, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever does serve Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so the big picture is this. Remember that the kingdom of God is not a, a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's not to say that eating and drinking is not important. Rather, it's to say that our eating and our drinking too should be done in the context of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's the big picture. So compared to being right about disputable matters, what is really important for God is to see His people living rightly in peace and joy with one another. Why? So that when non-Christians look at the church, or when they look at fellow Christians coming together, interacting with one another rightly and in peace and with joy, they'll want that too. They want to be able to join us. And that's why Paul says in verse 18 that such behavior is acceptable to God and approved by men. So what will bring this about? What will help us bring this about? In times when there are disputable matters at hand, the wrong question to ask if you are the strong is, well, how can I enjoy my freedom in Christ here? Or why can't I do that? The Bible doesn't say no. But rather, a better question to ask is this. How can I respond to this issue in a way that will lead to peace with my brother and the encouragement and holiness of my sister? So let me close. I'll just make three points here. Firstly, food in the days of the Israelites in the Promised Land was meant to set Israel apart from other nations. We are free to eat any food today. So food as a means to the end has changed. But the principle remains the same. Christians are meant to live lives that are holy, that are set apart 
from the wall. As John Stott puts it, and I quote, No command could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words. But you're no different from anybody else. For the essential theme of the whole Bible from the beginning to the end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself, that this people is a holy people set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him, and that its vocation is to be true to its identity, that is, to be holy or different in all its outlook and behavior. And then John Stott goes on to ask, how well are we doing this? Are we any different? End quote. And if we are honest about the situation, sadly the answer is no. Because many of us will call ourselves Christians today. But for many of us, we don't live lives any different from those that are not Christians. Allow me to be blunt. If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but we're living just like everyone else in the world, chances are we're really not Christians at all. This is the evidence of our faith, the best evidence of our faith. It's not a means to our salvation, not a means to our faith, but it's good evidence if we have really become Christians. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And perhaps the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this, how am I different as a Christian from the world? Do not be conformed to this world. Secondly, the food in the days of the early Christians were meant, was meant to bring them together. In fact, do you know that the word companion, companion comes from two Latin words, com, which means together with, and panis, which means bread, or you have it in French, right? Pang. Literally, it means companion means one who breaks bread with another. Look around you. Take a look around you. You're a pretty diverse bunch here. I can count at least 10 nationalities. Our diversity will make our unity that much harder. Whether it's because of language or cultural differences. And as we sit and eat together each week, lots of potential for conflicts and for judgmental attitudes. Can I make a plea? Please don't let, ever let our meals around this table be a cause for passing judgment or stumbling others, causing disunity. More importantly, can I, if I can push this point further, please don't let any resentment or unforgiveness be obstacles to our unity as a church. Can you take a moment right now? Think if there's anyone you know in our church or perhaps in the wider body of Christ that you need to forgive. Or perhaps to ask for forgiveness. If so, will you do it this week? 
Lastly, let me go back to the very fundamental question. What should be the significance of food to a Christian? How should we think about food? Well, as you probably can tell by now, God always intended for food to be more than merely uh, fuel for the body. When Jesus came, in Luke's Gospel, for instance, you see full of stories about Jesus eating with people. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the sinners at the home of Levi. Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Luke 10, he eats in the home of Martha and Mary. You get the idea. In fact, someone concluded, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> Even when he's not eating, Jesus' teaching makes many references to food. Luke 14, he tells the parable of the great banquet. Luke 15, he tells the parable of the prodigal son. You remember how it ends, the prodigal son? Bring me the fattened calf. Let's have a party. Right? Luke 16, he contrasts a rich man who feasted sumptuously every day with a beggar who desired to be fed with what fell from a rich man's table. And so on. In fact, Luke Chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus kind of made a confession. He said, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was what the teachers of the laws and, and the Pharisees were saying about him. See, Jesus had been accused of eating and drinking too much. And worst of all, he's been doing it with tax collectors and sinners. But that's precisely why eating and drinking was so important to Jesus' ministry. Because it is a sign of friendship with tax collectors and sinners. Let me quote at length uh, an author, Tim Chester, who wrote a book, A Meal with Jesus. He wrote, Meals for Jesus represented something bigger. They represent a new world, a new kingdom, a new outlook but they give that new reality substance. Jesus' meals were not just symbols, they're also application. They're not just pictures, they are the real thing. Food is stuff. It's not ideas. It's not theories. It's food, and you put it in your mouth, you taste it, you eat it. And meals are more than food. They are social occasions. They represent friendship, community, and welcome. They are a window into Jesus' message of grace, and the way it defines his community and its mission. A new outlook, that's what it provides. But food also represents a future hope. At the Last Supper, Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 17, And he took a cup, and when he had finished, given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes. You see, Jesus is pointing to a day when he will drink with us again and eat with us. And that day is described in Revelation chapter 19. Turn with me to page seven, 976 in the Black Bible. 976, 976, and 1141 in the Large Screen Bible. 1141, Large Screen. And look at from verse 6 onwards. Revelation chapter 19. Let me read for you. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exhort and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our hope when Jesus comes again is that as followers of Jesus, we have been invited to that marriage supper of the Lamb. A new outlook, a future hope. And that's what food, our eating and drinking should remind us. Let our daily meals be an expression of this new outlook and future hope. Let us partake of our food with thankfulness, obedience and dependence on God. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.